Well, uh, we live in a, uh, an era of choice. I don't know if you've realised that, but if you reflect back on the last, uh, even just the last 20 years, so most of us can remember the last 20 years, uh, the, the amount of choice in our lives has dramatically increased. Uh, I can remember uh, as I grew up in a smallish country town, uh, Manildra, for those who know where Manildra is, uh, if you wanted to go out for a meal, uh, you had one choice. Uh, Chinese at the bowling club, um, and that was the that was the case for Morissette, I believe, around around the same time. There wasn't much choice, but now if you want to go out for dinner in Morissette, well, when Lucy and I want to go out, we spend most of the time deciding where we're going to go. There's so much choice. You can get some uh, sushi in the supermarket. Who would have thought Morissette, a sushi place? We've got Thai, we've got Indian. There's so much choice. If you want to drive a car, it's not just cars that are made in Australia. You can get a car from wherever you want. Uh, we've got choice about education, we've got choice about sport. It's not just, uh, do you want to play sport? It's, well, which sport? If you want to play footy, well, which code? Uh, there is so much choice in our lives, in our diet, in our dress. Uh, we're, we're now at a point of luxury in our culture uh, where we can afford to choose our diet. I don't know if we realise uh, what a luxury it is. At almost no other time in history uh, have people, on a broad scale, been able to choose what they want to eat and what they can afford not to eat. Uh, We have a choice. Uh, We also have the choice in Australia, like never before, about spirituality. Uh, You just have to drive in in our our region. You can go past the Buddhist temples. Uh, We can look around. Uh, There's uh, Christadelphian churches. There's Seventh-day Adventist churches. There's Salvation Army churches. Uh, There's a whole whole bunch of spiritual retreats, especially as you head out towards Kurumbong and Martinsville. Uh, It seems there's a whole bunch of uh, spiritual options uh, across Australia and even in our region. We're, we're confronted with choice in what we can believe. And that means uh, that for in, our, in our culture, in our community, we have a lot more diversity than we've ever seen before. Uh, most people that we come across believe something different to what we believe. Uh, at most eras in human history, that hasn't been the case. Communities have basically believed the same thing spiritually. This community might be different to that community, But by the by, as you go down the street in your little community, everyone you bump into basically believes the same thing as you. No longer. Uh, The person you sit next to at work probably believes something spiritually different to you. Uh, The people we drive past, the way we live next to, that we interact with on a daily basis, often believe something very different to us. Uh, And it raises the question for us, uh, how should we feel about people believing different things to us? I don't know if you've actually given that any thought. But but when you you think about someone believing, uh, particularly spiritually, uh, believing something different to what we believe, how should we feel about that? How should we feel about that and how should we treat them? Um, Now, now I wonder if you're a bit confused about how to feel. Uh, Because we're getting a whole bunch of messages uh, in our our life, in our culture. Uh, We have uh, a a big thing about, about my truth. Uh, That was a a phrase that's really only been coined in the last five years or so. It used to be just truth, but now it's my truth. Well, this is my truth. That's how it'd be used in the sentence. Well, I don't care what you believe, but this is my truth. Now, you might not be familiar with that phrase, but you're probably familiar with the concept. And when we're confronted with someone who believes, who've got their truth, who say, well, this is what I believe. This is true. This is my truth. Uh, How do we feel about them? How do we respond to them? Uh, Well, we're, we're told, you know, 
don't judge others, you're not perfect. Uh, and actually, that's, that's quite a biblical concept, isn't it? They're, 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 we, we think, oh yeah, that, sound, that sounds Christian, that sounds biblical. So how, how am I going to relate to this person who believes something different? Uh, we're told to be a peacemaker. Uh, that's probably the only thing that people who aren't Christians know about Christians, is aren't you people meant to be peacemakers? Uh, aren't you meant to not judge others? That, that's, you ask the, the standard person who doesn't follow Jesus, what do you know about Christians or the Bible? They'll say, well, I know you're meant not to judge. You're meant to be a peacemaker. And you think, well, how, how does that change how we relate to people? Um, uh, we, we, we feel culturally often as though we should just be happy for them. Uh, and, and we get that feeling often from the way people speak to us. I've had it said many times to me, well, I'm happy that you found something. I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you found something that works for you. And when someone says that to us, we feel the pressure to reciprocate, to, to say back to them, oh, well, I'm happy that you found something that works for you. And so we have this pressure. How do we relate to people who, who, believe, uh, who believe different things than we do? Um, well, today, and in fact, this whole term, as we, we step through this letter to the Galatians, uh, we're going to explore this very issue in thinking about how we should feel and how we should respond uh, particularly uh, to those who don't share our spiritual beliefs. Uh, in particular, those who promote and believe a form of Christianity that might have some seemingly slight differences. Someone who says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but, but the Jesus they believe in or the version of Christianity that they follow looks a little bit different. Uh, and so that's what this letter's all about. That's what we're going to be looking at today. How should we feel... Uh, when we're confronted with people who believe a, a version of Christianity, a form of Christianity, that, that's different to the one that we believe. Uh, so today, a bit of a flight plan for the sermon. Uh, we have a look at the Galatians context, so we'll find about where do they live, when did they live, what's going on for them, just so that we understand this letter. Uh, we're going to have a look at um, the very first few verses of this letter, where Paul presents his gospel, his good news, his message. Uh, and we see he, he shows us what's at stake What's at stake in thinking about the gospel? Uh, then we're going to think about uh, the emotion of anger. Uh, that might feel a bit out of the blue, but believe me, it makes sense when we see what Paul has to say. Uh, and we're going to think, well, is, is anger appropriate or dangerous? How should we as Christians, or as those who are thinking about how we follow Jesus, how should we think about uh, anger? And, and we'll finish up by, by thinking about, well, how can we direct our passions? So that's where we're heading today. Um, now, first of all, it is a new book, a new series. Uh, as I said, we, we, we preach through books of the Bible, so we'll be doing one chunk after another. So today it's 1 to 10. Next week it'll be 11 to 21. So we'll just work through the book uh, as, it, as it comes. Um, so here's, here's what we need to know about the context. Where does, where does this book of the Bible, this part of the Bible, come from? And, and we actually start to get the context at the very start of the book. So uh, verse 1, Galatians 1 verse 1, begins with this introduction. Paul, an apostle. Sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters uh, with me. To the churches in Galatia. Um, so first of all, we have, uh, we have some information about this letter. Um, so I need to tell you, it's a letter. It's not a novel. Uh, it's a letter from a real man, man named Paul. Uh, Paul was an uh, apostle. Uh, so that sort of means uh, an authorised person. Uh, Jesus authorised certain people to deliver his message. Uh, originally, there was the 12 uh, disciples. Jesus, they, they became the apostles. And they were the authorised messengers who were to carry out this good news of Jesus. 
Uh, I, I heard it described a little bit like, I don't know if you're aware, on Facebook, you can become an authorised person on Facebook. Uh, so especially for famous people like, you know, say, Donald Trump or Mark Zuckerberg, if you're famous, chances are there's someone out there who's made a fake account in your name with your image. And, and how do you know? Who, who's the real Mark Zuckerberg? Well, Facebook has a little blue tick uh, that they authorise at the bottom of the profile picture. So if you're ever wondering, is this person the real famous person, look for that little blue tick. And that's sort of what Paul's saying here. He's, he's saying, this is my tick, this is my authorisation. I'm the real deal. I've been authorised by Jesus. I'm not an imposter. I haven't made this up. Uh, this is coming directly from the source. Uh, and Paul, he's, uh, he's, and we'll see in a, in a bit, he's the one who, who started these churches. He brought this gospel, this good news to them for the first time. Uh, and now he's writing a letter back to them. Uh, and these churches are in a region uh, called uh, Galatia. Now, Galatia is a region in modern-day Tur- Turkey, um, settled by the Celtic Gauls a couple of hundred years before Jesus. So if you ever read the Asterix and Obelix, uh, comics when you're growing up, you, you might be familiar with the Gauls, they're one of my favourites. Um, but but a, a, a people group who settled this particular region at the time of this letter being written, uh, it's under the Roman Empire. Um, uh, we're looking, uh, this letter was written probably 48 or 49 uh, AD, uh, so only about 15 years after Jesus died uh, and rose, rose again. So it's, it's probably the earliest or one of the earliest New Testament books or letters, only 15 years after the events of Jesus. And it's written to these people, a group of churches who are in this region, uh, north of Israel. So on this map, uh, Israel's way, way, way down uh, to the bottom, down south, to the bottom right, right-hand side. Um, so it's up in north, modern-day Turkey, uh, a group of people in the Roman Empire, uh, predominantly non-Jewish people in this part of the, part of the world, so lots of Jewish people down in Palestine, down in Israel, but up here in Galatia, mostly Gentiles. And that, that word Gentile just means non-Jew. So if you're anything other than a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's the way the, the Bible treats it. But uh, I don't know if you can see, Galatia is a long way uh, from Israel. Uh, how did this, this, this region end up with churches, plural, only 15 years after Jesus? They didn't have the internet, they didn't have flights, uh, you couldn't spread your message easily. How, how, did, how did that happen? Um, well, uh, the, the, the story goes that after Jesus rose and died from the dead, uh, first of all, the first converts to Christianity, the first people who accepted Jesus as the saviour of the world were Jews. Uh, they, they, all the apostles were Jews. Uh, the, most of the very early converts were Jewish uh, and they said, yeah, this is the promised saviour that we've been waiting for in the Old Testament. So very early on, it was, it was really a Jewish movement who had accepted Jesus as the true Messiah. And they said, yeah, this is all our hopes and dreams as Jews. Um, but they realised, and mostly through Jesus revealing it to them uh, through the Holy Spirit, they realised um, that, that non-Jewish people could be involved in this group too. Uh, you didn't have to be a Jew to be part of Jesus' family. That was one of the remarkable changes um, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, that now uh, any nation, any people, any race, uh, whether you're slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, you can join God's family. Uh, and so we had this, this beautiful church start, and, and especially in the non-Jewish regions, uh, where 
there were, there were non-Jew, non-Jewish background people becoming Christians and joining the church, and they became mixed, almost indistinguishable uh, from each other. Now, now as, as people became Christians and they moved and they moved, sometimes they moved because they were persecuted, because they were chased out of town. That's what happened when uh, persecution started in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7. Uh, they, they all fled, and we have a little... A uh, little, little phrase uh, just in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 8, I think it's the first couple of verses, where it said, They all fled and preached the gospel wherever they went. All these Christians, they fled for their lives, but they couldn't help telling people about Jesus. And that's how uh, a church was planted in Antioch, uh, which is uh, Syria, so that's, that's quite a bit north of Israel. Uh, and, and Antioch, a very non-Jewish, Gentile region. This church popped up out of nowhere... Uh, not because one of the apostles went there, not because Paul went there, but because ordinary Christians fleeing from their lives uh, shared the good news of Jesus and a church was established. Um, now, I'm telling you that because Antioch was one of the churches where Paul ended up, uh, he and his mate, his sidekick, uh, Barnabas, they ended up there for a few years uh, preaching and teaching and building up that church. Um, but eventually, eventually, uh, Antioch, or the church in Antioch, realised, together with Paul and Barnabas, that they needed to do something, they needed to act, and they needed to send Paul and Barnabas out, uh, which was pretty revolutionary. They weren't a massive church. They weren't a very old church. This is pretty early on in the gospel. They couldn't have been older than sort of 10 years old. And they went, no, no, there's other people who have not yet heard about Jesus. So they said, yep, let's send our two best people, Paul and Barnabas. Off you go. Uh, And they sent Paul and Barnabas on what we now call Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, So from Antioch, first... Uh, down to the island of Cyprus, uh, two different places in Cyprus where churches were established. And then he went up to Galatia, um, so up to modern-day Turkey, and, and travelled around there sharing the good news about Jesus, establishing churches uh, that were mixed. There were Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles together, following Jesus, established as churches. Um, so that's, that's what was going on uh, in Galatia. Um, uh, now, but back, uh, back in Jerusalem, uh, we ended up with a, a, a new group uh, who were Jewish, uh, Jewish background, who were following Jesus, but they tried to, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to bring back some more of their Judaism into this new group called the church. Uh, they weren't happy with the sort of loosey-goosey, nice and free uh, Christian church. They went, no, no, no. This is a Jewish movement, and so this new church who followed Jesus, they should follow some, not all, some of the Old Testament uh, ceremonial laws. Uh, they became known as the Circumcision Party. Uh, so guess what they stand for? Yeah, well, circumcision, you guessed it. Uh, but but they, they, that was one of the things that they promoted. They said, no, if you want to be a Christian, it, it's not enough that you trust Jesus, that you believe in Christ. You've also got to do some other ceremonies. Uh, three main ones, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to eat certain foods in a certain way or avoid certain foods in certain ways, and you're meant to keep certain holy days. And all those things come up in the letter to Galatians, Paul addresses them. Uh, and this group, they'd infiltrated the church in Jerusalem, uh, and they weren't content with that. They actually sent out uh, ambassadors or their own missionaries to the churches around the, the Roman Empire, up all the way to Galatia, sent them specifically to say and to teach, you can't be a Christian unless you follow these certain Old Testament laws. Uh, And and they got a hearing. 
Now, we might now think, oh, those silly Galatians, why did they listen? Uh, but you've got to remember, back in the day, they, they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a text. They only had what they'd been taught audibly. And he, if you're a Gentile, you're a bit insecure because you'll think, well, I didn't come from the people who are God's people. I'm, I'm only a Gentile. I don't have Jewish ancestry. I didn't grow up reading the Old Testament. Uh, what am I? And along come these Jewish people who say, oh, we're here to educate you. And, and I'll tell you what, we've got a secret for you. If you do these few little things, you'll be a proper Christian. You'll be right in there. Uh, and it was tempting. It was alluring. Uh, and the Galatians had started to fall for it. They had fallen uh, for these teachers who'd come in and said, we want you to do these ceremonies to become proper Christians. Uh, so so that's, that's where the state of the Galatian churches are when Paul sits down to write this letter. And Paul, he, he hears about what's going on. Uh, and we're going to find out he, he's pretty upset, to put it mildly. He's pretty concerned. He's very passionate. And so he pens this letter in direct response uh, to what's going on in the churches uh, in Galatia. So, so that's point one, the Galatian context. That's what's going on. Um, and, and as we start reading the, this letter to these churches in Galatia, the first thing that Paul does, having introduced himself, is he outlines uh, the gospel. Uh, he, he, wants them to, he wants to remind them what the gospel was. So, so gospel just means good news. So he, he, he outlines again what the good news was that he first taught them, uh, that was straight from Jesus, that they departed from. So that's what he does first. He outlines the gospel. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about what's at stake if you compromise, if you move away from that teaching. And we get that in verse 3. Uh, so he's just introduced himself and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that is the gospel. Often we, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read these books uh, a few times, uh, you can sort of get a bit blind to this. You just read through, you think, oh, it's just one of Paul's welcomes. He says the same thing. But you, we, we've got to slow down and read this. Paul starts with what's important. This is the core of what he believes. It's the core of what he taught them. It's the core of the gospel, the good news. And, and I just want to highlight three chunks of that. The, the first is our state, our state before Jesus. You see that there? Our state is that we are... Uh, we had sins, uh, and that's uh, a, a defilement, a wrongness, a rebellion. We had sins, uh, and we needed rescuing. We needed rescuing. So it's, it's really important to stop and say, no, no, this, it's not, not, a, not an illness. We didn't need improving. No, we, we had sins, and we needed rescuing. So we were helpless, and we had a great need. Uh, we, we get a little uh, insight into the nature of the rescue itself. Well, how, did, how does someone rescue one from their sins? Uh, well, Jesus gave himself for our sins. So this is, uh, this is a reference, of course, to the cross. Uh, what we, we, we call the atonement, the great swap, where Jesus at the cross took on himself the penalty, the consequence, the guilt and shame for our sin, for our rebellion to God, what we deserve for our rebellion. He took that on himself. He gave himself to take that so that he could rescue us from that consequence and in turn give us eternal life. Uh, and then we see the result. Uh, the result, grace and peace to you from God. Have you ever reflected on grace and peace? 
that, that in the context of the Christian life, in the context of spirituality, the only way you can give someone grace and peace is if they have been rescued from their sins by Jesus. Because that's what, that's what grace is. It's this undeserved generosity, this gift that God's given to us in forgiveness. And the only way we can have peace with God is to wipe out, wipe out our sins, to get rid of our guilt and shame and come back into his family. Uh, so, so we might say, I don't know if you've ever said to someone, oh, grace and peace, or you see it on the card. That, that's a tremendously powerful statement, a huge declaration about where someone is before God. And it's only because we've been rescued by Jesus giving himself for us. And that's just a little snapshot of the gospel. We're going to see that again and again and again through this book. So we, we won't dwell on that. But amidst all this good, amidst all this uh, amazing uh, good that we see, the, the gospel, you've got to remember the context. So that's the gospel. That's the message Paul preached. But these teachers have come in uh, with some extra rules to follow. And the Galatian church has been sucked in. And Paul is astonished. Have, have a look at his language here. Verse 6 uh, to, t- uh, to 9. He says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, now that is passionate, strong language. Why the outrage? Why the passion? Well, it's because of what's at stake. Uh, Now, uh, to illustrate this, uh, if someone chooses to have tomato sauce on their sausage when they're down at Bunnings, when clearly barbecue sauce is better... Uh, so, okay, Hannah's disagreeing. Well, I, you, know, you can come and have an argument with me. You know, clearly, I've got the microphone. Clearly, barbecue's better. Now, if I'm putting your tomato sauce, I might shake my head and, oh, you're missing out on such a delightful culinary experience. Um, but I, I wouldn't be astonished. And I hopefully wouldn't be outraged. Yeah, she's wrong. But, but I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be outraged. Uh, because yeah, there's not much at stake. She's, she's missing out and will continue to miss out until she repents. But I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be outraged, as you can tell. Uh, but but on the on the other hand, as this this isn't about a culinary experience. There is the the relationship with Jesus is what's at stake here. Did you did you pick that up in verse six? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting, not the gospel, the one who called you. The one who... That's, that's relational. That's, re, that's relational language. You're not, you're not just changing your opinion. You're not just changing what you believe. You are deserting someone you are in a relationship with. By accepting this Christian teaching that requires believers to keep certain Old Testament rules, Paul is saying there is more than lifestyle at, the, at stake. There's, there's more than a foreskin or what you can and can't eat. Uh, there's more than which day of the week you set aside uh, to worship God. There's far more than that on the, on the line. Your relationship with Jesus. And he says it even more clearly. Actually, your, your salvation is at stake. 
Because if you abandon your relationship with Jesus, you're abandoning the only one who can save you. Uh, we, we see that there uh, where he says, you're turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. So you, you're trusting in Jesus, which isn't really Jesus at all. Um, for, for example, uh, if, uh, if one of your children, sorry to be a negative example, if one of your children were kidnapped, like on the movie Taken, uh, you might want to call up Liam. Liam Neeson, you might want to give him a call. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, you know, brace yourselves, it's pretty intense. Uh, but he's a, he's a spy, he's, he's just an awesome fighter, and he goes and finds his girl, and it's, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, it's not too sad. Spoiler. There you go. Uh, but but if you, that's the Liam you, you want. Now, if you think, okay, I need Liam, my, my kid's been taken, I need this guy. And this guy shows up. Uh, you know, he's still called Liam. You say, I want Liam. And someone said, yeah, I, I, I've got, I know Liam. I know Liam. I, I can get him. He'll get, you, he'll get your kid back. Well, I've got a certain set of skills, but they, they don't involve finding kid back, that children. So, so the language is the same, isn't it? You know, you still need Liam. He's got a certain set of skills, but you've got the wrong one. They're, they're different people. I don't know if you realised, you know, it's, yeah. But, but we're different people. We're both called Liam, but we're different. And that's what Paul's saying about the gospel. They might still follow Jesus. They might still use the same words, use the same language. It might sound very similar. But if it's changed, it is different. We know that, don't we? If you change something, it is now different. It's not the same. It's been changed. You change something, you add something to it, you take something away, it is now different. And Paul says that makes it ineffective. It's not actually the gospel at all. It's not good news. The only way it's not good news is if it doesn't save you. It's ineffective. It it can't work. And Paul says if anyone is teaching that, let them be under God's curse. You you can't be, be more strongly passionate about what someone's teaching than that, can you? Not just, oh, they, they probably need rebuking. They probably need correcting. Someone should let them know that they're wrong. Let them be under God's curse. So how, how did they change the gospel? What did, they, what did they change? Well, as I said, we'll dig into this throughout the whole letter. But at the core, uh, the change they made to the gospel, the, the circumcision party, the change they made to the gospel... Uh, is involved with, well, it's about how involved we are with our salvation. Got a bit of an illustration to help out here. Um, Not hard to imagine at the moment with the bushfires. Your your house is semi-burning down. You're inside. And what's worse, uh, something falls out of the roof and traps one of your legs. Um, So now, now I've got two versions of a very similar story. Uh, So one version is you're in your house, you're trapped... You're conscious, someone, and you try and lift it off. There, there's no way you can get this beam off your leg. Uh, no hope. Uh, and someone runs in, a rescuer comes in, uh, and they come and they go to lift this beam and they, they can't do it. They're really strong, but they just can't get it. And so you manage to reach up and grab a pipe and, and sort of lever yourself out, and together you're rescued. Uh, they, they help you hobble out and, and, and you're out. Now, the news coverage, what's the news story going to be the next day? You know, hero uh, saves, saves the day. But there'll be a subtext, won't there, saying, amazing, amazing personal strength. You know, Liam, 
while trapped, still managed to haul himself out with the help of someone. But, but both people get credit, don't they? Both are involved. Another version of that story, you're in your house, you're trapped and you're unconscious. You're passed out. Someone comes in, they, they lift it out, they drag you out, they bring you outside, they're resuscitated. Now, they're very similar, aren't they? Both involve a burning house where you're trapped and you can't get out yourself. You are unable to save yourself. So we agree on that. But very different in that subtle change. Uh, were you unconscious and unable to do anything to help? Or, hey, I needed help. I, I needed a coach. I needed someone to help me. But, but ultimately, I, I participated. I made the headline too. I got a bit of honour and glory because I did well as, as well. And that's fundamentally that's at the core of what's happening here with this Galatian controversy. People are saying, you can contribute to your salvation. There is something that you can do. Oh, yeah, we agree. You were, you were unable to save yourself. Yeah, yeah, you needed rescuing. Yeah, Jesus did that. But there's a few things that you need to do to help leave yourself out. Get circumcised, eat these foods, worship on this special day. These, these selected Old Testament laws. It changes the gospel. And it changes who gets the glory. Because with the second version, or sorry, with the first version, where you help yourself, you get, you get a bit of the glory. But with the proper gospel, the, the only one who gets glory is the rescuer. You're unconscious. There's, there's no way. Well, actually, truly, the gospel, you were dead. And they dragged you out and resuscitated you. The only person who gets glory there is the rescuer. And so what's at stake is actually God's glory, God's honour, how much praise he gets. Now, we don't talk about God's, God's glory much, and we should more. And it's easily missed because it comes up so often. You read your Bible and God's glory is there. It's there in this passage. We almost didn't notice it. To the glory of God. All this that God is doing, everything that we can do, should be for God's honour and praise and worship for his glory. That's how it should be. He deserves it. He made everything. And not only does he he make and sustain us, but he's given us salvation. And he deserves all the glory. None of that deserves to go to me. None of that deserves to go to anyone else. So God's, God's glory is at stake. Now, now with, with all that at stake, uh, what, what, do we, what do we do when we, we read about Paul's passionate response? Let them be under God's curse. Well, well in the context, uh, and, and having seen Paul's gospel and what's at stake, I think now's the time to think about anger. Now's the time to think about Paul's anger because it's, I'd say it's pretty clearly anger that's going on there. Let them be eternally condemned. Later on in this letter, he says, well, if they're going to recommend circumcision, I suggest that they go and do the job properly, as in chop it all off. He, 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 he's angry with these teachers. He, he doesn't want good things for them. But, but for, for Christians, for those who are seeking to follow and honour Jesus, what do we do with anger? Is it, is it appropriate or is it dangerous? Well, it, it seems pretty, pretty clear uh, that, that Paul, Paul is angry. Um, now, now, as we think about emotions, uh, one of the things we need to recognise is that as we follow Jesus, there's, there's lots of things that get, uh, get transformed. 
Uh, we try and model this in our home group notes. So if you're in a home group, you'll know our three categories that we think about in a passage. Our head, our heart and our hands. So we think, well, what do we learn? We should be transformed in what we know. Uh, and we should be transformed in what we do, in our actions. But the other thing that gets transformed as you seek to follow Jesus is your heart. How you feel. Our emotions get transformed uh, as well. So, so we grow in feeling the right things, in having the right passions. And one of these most basic, intrinsic and telling passions is anger. Uh, across the New Testament, uh, when Jesus or the other New Testament authors are instructing Christians, when they're speaking about anger, the overwhelming theme is that anger is dangerous for Christians. The, uh, that's the overwhelming theme. Um, I'll, I'll flick through just a couple of them. Here's Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Uh, he says, oh, you've heard it said that murdering's bad, but I say to you... Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus said pretty bluntly. Now, just a warning, if you've got a King James Version, version they've added a couple of words here. Uh, angry without reason. That's not there in the Greek. That's not there in the original. And all the other translations recognise that. So it's not just oh, angry with good cause. Oh, there's lots of things I could be angry. No, this is just anger. If anyone is angry, if anyone is angry... Uh, You'll be subject to judgment. Uh, twice, both in Ephesians and Colossians, anger is listed with ungodliness that must be expelled. Um, so, and there's a, these lists are pretty obvious stuff, and anger is on them. Uh, and here in Galatians, just a few chapters later in chapter 5, anger is listed as a work of the flesh as opposed to a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul warns you that if you are an angry person, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, a.k.a. you won't be saved. So anger is not a small thing. The overwhelming theme of the New Testament is that anger is dangerous. But there's more to be said about it. Jesus gets angry a couple of times. Famously in the temple when he sees the outrageous abuse of uh, power and the the use of the temple, turning the temple into a a money-making site... Uh, And he's angry, he flips the tables, he drives people out. When he sees the injustice of the Pharisees who are abusing the poor, he he says he's he's angry. Uh, When he sees the Pharisees who who parade in a a man with a shriveled hand, uh, for uh, they they try and trick Jesus by this stunt using someone who who has a a physical disability. And Jesus is angry. And grieved, but, but he's angry. So we look, we go, okay, well, it can't be always sin because Jesus does it. Uh, and there's a couple of other verses that talk about anger that I'm going to take you to. Uh, Ephesians 4.26, um, the ESV puts it this way, uh, be angry, but do not sin. Uh, your NIV will say, in your anger, do not sin. I think they basically made the same thing. Uh, it's not condemning anger overtly. It's saying, oh, when anger comes along... Warning, warning. Sin will be hot on its heels. That's what it's saying. Don't let the sun go. Don't. The longer that anger stays in you, the more likely sin will happen. You get rid of that anger in 10 seconds, it'll be less likely you'll sin than you deal with it in 10 minutes. Then you deal with it in 10 hours, then you hang on to it for 10. The longer it goes on, the more likely. That, that's what this passage is saying. Get rid of it quickly. Uh, and over in James, James writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Not the anger a man seldom produces, or sometimes... No, no, it doesn't. Human anger, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, now, uh, I I think summarising all this uh, without spending too much more time on it, uh, I think anger can be good. Can be good when it's in the right moment for the right thing in the right measure, to the right person, and it's a big one, in the right way. Now, what do you reckon your chances are of getting all five of those right in any given situation when you're angry? Who's confident? <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I reckon I have... Ne- like, it's so close to zero chance that it, it might as well be no difference that I could get all those right in that moment, in the way I think, in the way I speak or in what I do. So I think anger can be good if it's thought about or spoken about or or acted on in all these ways. So in summary, anger is very, very dangerous. And I reckon it's almost impossible to act, speak or even think in anger without sinning. And and, uh, I think that, that James passage... Just, just have that ring in your ears. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But having said that, when we see wrong, if we've been transformed by God, if we're Christians, if we follow Jesus, when we see wrong, if God's transforming us and he is perfectly good, then we should feel something. When we see uh, slaughtering happening in Turkey or Indonesia, when we see abuse happening in Australia... Uh, when, when closer to home, we, we, we see wrong, we, we should feel something. If God is transforming us and he is good and he is right, we should feel something. Our hearts should be stirred, our passions, but our passions need to be directed, uh, especially when it comes even close to being something like anger. Um, so that, that's our final point, uh, how to direct our passions, uh, especially uh, when it comes to thinking about anger. And the first one, when we think about being passionate, because we should feel, I think God's people should be passionate people, we need to be passionate to please the right people uh, or the right person. Uh, And we get that in the very last verse of our passage today, verse 10. This is how Paul wraps up this little chunk. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I'm still trying to please people... I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, I think our passions come out when we think about who we're trying to please. Whose approval are we trying to win? So, so when being passionate is good. The Bible shows us that. Says, shows us that. Uh, feeling deeply is good. But be passionate to please God and not people. It is so easy to please people. It's so easy to, to well, not to please them, but to want to please them. It's a trap that I fall into. I think that we all fall into. There's different people that you're going to want to please. For some, it'll be more obvious than others. There's someone you, you want them to think, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, they know, what they know what they're talking about. They're worthy of respect. And it comes, when it comes to the gospel, that, that's a temptation. To, to change it, to adjust it, to leave some things out so that it's more palatable, so it's more pleasing, so that more people will say, yeah, you teach good stuff, Lane. Yeah, the church you go to, oh, that's one of the good churches, isn't it? 
One of the ones that isn't judgy? Yeah, that's a good church. It's easy to want to please people and not God. So be passionate to praise the right person. Uh, The next one is to be passionate about the right things. Uh, One of the good things about anger, there's not many, uh, is that it's an amazing idol detector. So if you get angry about something, guaranteed you are passionate about that thing. Now, I don't care how you say you feel about sport, but if someone starts bagging out your team and you get angry, you love that team. It's a a test, isn't it? Um, So if you get angry when someone starts to diss this thing or when its reputation's being smeared in the mud uh, or when something bad happens to it or them, that says you love them. That says you care about them. That says you esteem them. And on the other side of things, if you don't get angry when their names drag through the mud, when they're treated badly, do you really love them? No. It's, if you, you don't feel passionately when something that you say or someone that you say you love is being disrespected, dragged through the mud or hurt, do you really love them? Do you really feel passionately about them? I don't think so. So, so anger and these strong emotions around anger, they're, they're, they're a great idol detector. So we need to be careful to be passionate about the right things. Bit of homework. Think about what are the things I get passionate about, that I get angry about when someone disses. Do I love that thing too much? And do I feel that about God? Uh, We also need to be passionate for others' good and our safety. And I think that's what Paul's doing here in uh, Galatians 1.9. As we've already said, now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel other than what's accepted, uh, let them be under God's curse. Now, now Paul, in the previous verse, um, he he says, if anyone preaches to a gospel, even us, even if we or an angel come and preach to you something different. So it's it's not an ego trip for Paul saying, only listen to me, don't listen to anyone else. He's saying, this is about you, this is about your safety. And we, like Paul, should be passionate about other people's safety. Uh, when someone is, is being taught, someone we know is being taught or guided down a path of spirituality that will not save them, we should be passionate for their good. And that will mean speaking up about it. Being passionate about their safety and their good will mean saying gently, appropriately, lovingly. And, and this is where you can see how dangerous anger is. Because when it's said in anger, it's almost never received well. It comes across as just an angry young person shouting about something. And that's not a good look. No one receives things well. But when it's done in love and gently in relationships, it is right and good and proper to say something to them if you care about them. Because what they believe is leading them to a path to destruction. So be passionate about others' good and, and our safety. That means... Even if I say something that is contrary to the gospel, that is leading us down a path other than what the Bible teaches, what Paul teaches, protect yourselves, protect each other. Kick me out. Please do, for your good. I'm not planning to do that. That wasn't nerves. It's not like, oh. Uh, but, but, but seriously, if, if Rob or I or anyone else who's got any sort of leadership or influence in this church, say something appropriately, you know, to the right people at the right time. Do it, do it right. But, but, but protect yourselves. This isn't about any one person or any one institution. This is about our eternal security, which is at risk. 
And the final one is be passionate for God's glory. Um, and, that, and that's we, we see that that's where Paul ends here, isn't it? To the to the glory of God. Uh, when someone else is getting the credit for their salvation, when when someone else is saying, "Well, I'm pretty good. I follow those rules pretty well," that is robbing God of some glory He deserves. When someone is living their whole life and not thanking God, not honouring God, not not following Him and living for Him, they are failing to give God glory and honour and praise that He deserves. So one of the reasons we should share Jesus with them is so that God gets glory, not just so that they get saved. That's a great motivation, but so that God gets glorified. So let's, let, let's work at being passionate for God's glory.